You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. This episode features Josie Dixon, the great, 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 great granddaughter of Polish-Lithuanian violinist and composer Felix Janowicz, who was born in 1762, settled in Scotland and co-founded the first Edinburgh Music Festival, the precursor to the present-day International Festival, in 1815. Janowicz's story tracks a continent, takes in a revolution and evolves the loss of a Stradivarius. But that story originally remained firmly in his native Poland until Josie discovered a square piano in the UK that bore his signature. That same piano kick-started a research project by Josie which culminates in mid-June 2022 in an exhibition of the instrument alongside other Janowicz artefacts, almost none of which have been seen by the public before. The exhibition is accompanied by talks and concerts at the Georgian House in Edinburgh, including an in-conversation with Armando Anucci on music, migration and Scotland. So I'm Josie Dixon and um, I'm running the Janowitz Project, um, which is in celebration of the musical legacy of my ancestor, uh, a Polish-Lithuanian violinist, who came to Britain, settled here, and founded the first Edinburgh Festival. So I'm busy running an exhibition, organising events, writing articles, and generally um, telling the world uh, his interesting story. He's your ancestor, then? Yes. So uh, Janowitz was my great-great-great-great-grandfather. So it's an absolutely direct line of descent. Um, Why did he come to, to Scotland? Uh, Well, Scotland was the end of a long journey for him, actually. Um, The journey starts in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So we're not quite used to this idea now with the shifting historical boundaries. But Poland and Lithuania were essentially one country or a Commonwealth combined. So under the same king. And um, Janowicz, or Janiewicz, as he would have been there, he anglicised his name later on. Uh, He began as a boy wonder playing in the uh, chapel royal of the Polish king, uh, Stanislaus August Poniatowski. So the king notices this hotshot violinist and um, decides that this is talent that needs fostering and pays for him to go to Vienna. So in Vienna, uh, he meets Haydn and Mozart, and Mozart's 19th century biographer thinks that Mozart wrote a work for him in that year. This is 1785 now. Um, Then he goes to Italy, we think, to learn with the great violin masters and is doing concerts in Rome and Florence and Milan. Uh, Then he goes to Paris. And he's recorded playing at the Concert Spirituel, which was the great um, concert series in the Tuileries Palace. Uh, So it was all going terribly well until the French Revolution broke out. And um, that obviously was a bit of a killer for his career. He had found himself an aristocratic patron, which suddenly wasn't such good news. And uh, the Concert Spirituel stopped in 1790. And two years later, the Tuileries was the scene of a bloodbath. And another year after that, um, his patron went under the guillotine. Uh, Now, Janowitz didn't stay to see that. Uh, We think that he jumped ship in about 1790. We don't know exactly. Um, But he decided, amongst a number of other musicians and artists, to leave Paris, uh, which was getting a bit too hot to handle, and uh, get on a boat to England. 
So he then surfaces in London, and by 1792, he's known as the celebrated Mr. Yanovitz. And from then on, he's spelling it the English way. Um, so he has a period in London. Then he goes to Liverpool, where he gets married and starts a musical instruments business, and then finally settles in Scotland. Uh, so he goes to Scotland in 1815, and that's the year that he founds the first Edinburgh Music Festival. Why have we not heard of him? Why have I not heard of him? Well, very interesting question. I mean, his um, musical memory has been better kept alive in Poland. Um, and really quite soon after he died, he seems to have rather um, disappeared from cultural memory in this country, um, but his music has still been performed in Poland. Um, so, yes, I mean, his, uh, he wrote um, some very fine violin concertos. I think those are far and away the most um, interesting works that he wrote, his, his greatest claim to fame. They sound like Mozart until you get to the final movement, and then it breaks out into a Polish folk dance. And uh, the contemporary sources talk about this. This was very much his signature thing. But why, why, what I'm not clear on is why... I'm sorry, I'm just going to ask the question again. What, why is it that it's only now? Is that, is that because... Uh, um, a slightly disingenuous question. Now, but but I is can't it, is tell it you why only now. That's to say I'm, I'm not sure I know how to account for his disappearance, but I can tell you why he reappeared. Um, so um, the project um, to celebrate his legacy came about um, with an extraordinary coincidence, a, a real chance, um, that uh, as a result of a quite random coffee break conversation that I had with somebody I'd never met before, um, I found myself telling her um, a bit of family legend, which I hadn't thought about for years and years, uh, about this musical ancestor and the fact that uh, one of the things that had come down the family, we've got various bits of memorabilia, which are all forming part of this exhibition. Um, one of the things that had come down the family was his double violin case and the documentation that this had contained a Stradivarius and an Amati. And uh, sadly, the violins were long gone. Um, but uh, I ran into somebody who was a journalist writing for the Strad magazine. And so I found myself telling her this story. Um, and that night, uh, this was about two and a half years ago, uh, coming home from London on the train, I suddenly thought, oh, my God, we've got the Internet. I could actually Google him. <laughs> Uh, and so I did. And I didn't find anything about the violin. That's a, a trail I'm still um, in pursuit of. Um, but what I did find was, quite unexpectedly, um, an advertisement for a beautifully restored square piano with his name on it. So I had no idea he had anything to do with pianos. Um, and it turned out that um, this instrument had been found by the man who restored it, Douglas Holly, um, somewhere in Snowdonia. And it was in very dilapidated condition, but he could see that this was an instrument that was worth restoring and might be of historical significance. So he bought it. It was all wrapped up and shipped off to him. And he didn't have time to do anything about it for the best part of 20 years. 
And when he unwrapped it and started the restoration work, um, he began also a parallel research project, seeing that the name on the label of the piano, you know how when you open up a piano and it says Steinway or Bechstein or whatever, this one says Janowitz and Green. So he was curious about Janowitz, began a research project and ended up publishing an article about him in the uh, consort, which is the Dolmetsch Foundation's journal. Um, and this, as far as I know, was more or less the most complete account of his career, certainly in English, though I have now found a scholar in Poland who's written a monograph about him. Um, so anyway, the discovery of this piano was the, the most extraordinary and exciting thing. And it was that night that I hatched a plan. Um, initially, I thought, I've got to buy this piano. We should have it in the family. And then the next morning, I talked myself out of that. I thought, actually, that to put it behind closed doors in a private house is not the most interesting destiny for this instrument. Because by this time, having read Douglas's article, I'd found out about his very interesting life. And I thought, actually, this is an instrument could be used to tell his story. And so the idea developed that um, if I could crowdfund for the piano, then we could take it to Scotland and it could be used as the centerpiece of an exhibition to tell his story. And what I could bring to that uh, as a member of his surviving family was all the material that had stayed in our family um, from his more private and domestic life, which had never been married up with what was known publicly about his career as a musician. So that's very much what the exhibition is about. What excites you about this? It's quite clear that when you're talking about this, you are very excited about it. I am. What, what, what um, well, I, I think um, his story is truly fascinating. Um, I'm interested in him as a migrant. Um, I think this is a moment when we really need to understand and to value the contribution of migrants to our culture. I don't think that has ever been so important. And I think that his status coming to Britain essentially as a refugee from the violence of the French Revolution, that has certain parallels and echoes that make his story actually very resonant, I think. And I find that quite moving, the um, echoes across the centuries there. So this is a story about music and migration. It's about what... Um, somebody who came to this country um, from a very different cultural background brought to our culture. And it's also a story about various turning points in musical history. Um, so one of them is about what he brought to Scotland in particular. So the narratives of the time about the importance of the first Edinburgh Music Festival in 1815 were all about um, Scotland moving from a, a what was seen as a rather inward-looking national folk culture in music towards a more outward-looking cosmopolitan European tradition, what we now identify as classical music. And um, that was something that he quintessentially represented, you know, coming trailing clouds of musical glory from Vienna and his encounters with Mozart and Haydn. Uh, he wasn't the only one. Actually, it's very interesting to find that the musical scene in Edinburgh was really run by emigres, so people like the Collie Brothers, for instance. Um, and this was true in London as well. 
And another turning point that he was part of um, was the founding of the Philharmonic Society. That was in London before he went to Edinburgh, a couple of years earlier, in 1813. And to look at the list of founding members, they, they are very large numbers of them are from continental Europe. And they were the movers and shakers who began to transform musical life in London. So I so, get the impression from what you're telling me that it, it wasn't that he was only a musical talent, but, but actually in coming to the country, which in itself was quite unusual, given the circumstances, he was also he was quite a networker. You know, absolutely. he made connections. He was an operator and, and, also, and an and, entrepreneur. Yeah. And that's something that's really very interesting, actually. I mean, it's very clear that, uh, again, this wasn't untypical for the day. He had very much a kind of portfolio career as a musician. So he's a virtuoso violinist. He's known as an orchestral leader. He's a composer. He's a dealer in musical instruments. And above all, he's an impresario. So he's organizing touring concerts up and down the country. One of the exhibits we've got uh, is a wonderful letter that he's writing from Bath, where he's clearly on tour giving concerts, uh, to Nottingham, where he's planning more concerts. And he talks about the, it's really about the finances and the economics of putting on concerts. He talks about uh, what subscription prices would be necessary to charge for concerts with maybe an audience of five or six hundred in order to cover the stratospheric expenses of the great operatic diva, Madame Catalani. So you see him actually um, in the business of organizing concerts and trying to make them work financially, as well as um, innovating programs and delighting audiences. Where does that transition happen? Because as I understand it, you know, his, his previous life, up until the outbreak of the French Revolution, was about being an artist who received patronage. And then he's shifting to uh, essentially sort of what sounds like modern day concert, concert planning, really. Well, where does, that, where does that transition right. happen? I think you're right. And I think there are probably two sides to that story. I think the individual one is about being a refugee and a migrant. But when you arrive in a country with very little to your name, um, he appears to have salvaged his violins, but I think not much else. Um, then you you need to be self-made, and and he was. So I think there is that element that you know you need to be entrepreneurial about your own career when you start over in a different country. Uh, you don't start with patrons. Um, so that's clearly one part of the story. And that self-making, I think, happened out of alliances with other musicians. So one of the very interesting sources I, I found, which I liked particularly because it ties up with some research I did long ago, you know, in another life, it seems, um, about um, literature and politics in the uh, 1790s, um, is that uh, Janowitz pops up in the diary of the political philosopher William Godwin. Now, Godwin is known chiefly um, as the author of a rather radical political treatise called An Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, uh, written in response to the French Revolution and the debates that that unleashed. He was also the husband of the feminist Mary Wollstonecraft and the father of the novelist Mary Shelley. So, very interesting person. Now, 
Godwin had a massive social network and he wrote a diary, which is the most invaluable historical resource. In some ways, it's quite infuriating because it says very little, but it also tells us a lot. What he mainly did was record often just a list of names who he saw virtually every day. So he'll say, you know, breakfast at so-and-so's and and that kind of thing. So we have in Godwin's diary um, in uh, the early 1790s, round the same dinner table at the house of Thomas Holcroft, who was a radical Jacobin novelist, um, equally as radical as Godwin, we have um, Janowitz and Clementi, um, the pianist, composer, and the manufacturers of the pianos that Janowitz was later to sell. So they clearly later on became business partners. Um, Janowitz, Clementi, and others, and they so they're having dinner, um, shade Thomas Holcroft, and then playing quartets after dinner. Um, very nice little detail there. Um, so I think that was part of the self-making, was this finding this community of other musical emigres, and there were artists in there too, I think. Um, the artist who painted his portrait, um, de Longasque, um, appears also to have been um, an emigre who came over in the, in the French Revolution. So that's one side of the story. And then the other one is where that kind of mutual association and self-organization of that community then becomes formalized in the founding of the Royal Philharmonic Society. And I think the bit that's that's significant there is that this was about um, the creation of the music profession as a profession and liberating it from patronage to become more about musical meritocracy. So this predates the first professional orchestras in London, but it is musicians self-organizing. Is there is there one leading light in that transition to the, the uh, you know the establishment of of the business of concert making, or is it just just that a number of different refugees, a number of different emigres are all coalescing around one particular subject at one moment in time? Is it one person or is it a group of people? There is that coalescence there, absolutely, and I do think it was a collective endeavour. So I, I can't claim that. <laughs> no, I wondered. I just wanted to check that in case you were thinking, no, it's, yeah, <laughs> no. it's, it's my ancestor. No, not at all. Um, no, I, I mean, I think he's, it, to me, for obvious um, reasons, he's a particularly interesting figure. Um, but no, there, there is no question that there were others who were all part of that. Clementi is one of them, uh, Viotti, um, quite a number of these continental musicians who were all coming together at once. Uh, in in preparing for all of this, in going through this this um, forgive me, the going on this journey, uh, has anything about this journey changed your view of him? Oh yes, lots. <laughs> um, I mean, there are all sorts of things I didn't know. I mean, when when I was growing up, um, his portrait hung in my grandmother's cottage, and all I knew at that point was that he was um, a violin virtuoso who'd come over from Polish Lithuania, and that he was involved in founding the first Edinburgh Music Festival. I had no idea he was a composer. So that was quite new to me. And likewise, the uh, the entrepreneur and the impresario, I mean, other than the festival, but he was clearly um, putting on concerts in, in a very energetic fashion long before that. That that was, was all part of his modus operandi. 
Um, I, I, I'm intrigued by the the idea that as a young girl you were told of a of an ancestor who was a virtuoso violinist. I mean, did do you recall how you felt or thought about that when you heard it the first time? I know how well, I would. It was all about the portrait, really. The, the the portrait itself, which I'm very much looking forward to exhibiting. Um, it's it's beautiful, and he looks like Mr. Darcy, really. <laughs> Um, so the, there was clearly something rather charismatic about that, but also a little bit enigmatic. Um, so I think I think there was probably you know the, the seeds of a certain fascination were sown at that point, um, but it took a long time to come to fruition. How? But there were one or two other things, like some um, some cutlery in my grandmother's cutlery drawer, which had his crest and motto Pro Lithuania. And that's another part of his story, which we'll be telling in the exhibition. Uh, how else has your view of him changed as a result of this? Oh, well, I think the more I learn, the more um, I get a sense of the character, really. And um, it's it's a very interesting mix. He's clearly very sociable, you know, the one who's around the dinner table in London um, and who's um, forming associations with other uh, musicians. Um, he is, as I say, quite an operator as an impresario. Um, there's also a very tender side to him, I think, um, which, which again feels quite sort of um, moving down the centuries, really, to, to suddenly feel those points of connection. Um, so I think I would identify that, for example, with... Um, a piece of music which um, my uncle had that was um, that had come down the the, the family. It was a, a later arra- arrangement of an elegie uh, for violin and piano. Um, I believe it actually comes from his violin sonata. Um, but there's a slightly romantic arrangement, and that really made me think: who was he sorrowing for when he wrote that elegie? And one answer might be the three of his children that didn't survive in beyond infancy. Another answer might be his homeland. He wrote Polish folk songs into a lot of his music. So I think there was a nostalgia there. And again, this echoes very much with the theme of migration and refugees, that sense of never being able to go back. Mm. And he really couldn't because the country that he left didn't exist later. Did and he following the partitions of Poland, uh, it became part of Russia. Did he? Was he and also part? Uh, was he also part of that movement of collecting folk songs? Did he collect? Did he collect folk songs in the same way that Bartol did? No, not that I know of. I think that was a much later phenomenon. Um, but um, yes, Bartok, Kodai, Vaughan Williams and so on, Cecil Sharp, I think all of that came later. Um, but there's no question that they were in his bloodstream and therefore he wrote them into the music. Mm. And I think it became part of his sort of musical calling card that um, although in some ways he was clearly assimilating, so anglicising the spelling of his name, and I assume that was the origin of this anglicised pronunciation that's come down the family, not Janjevic, but Janovic. But um, on the other hand, there was definitely still a, a really strong Polish street. So um, he writes um, Polish rondos, mazurkos, 
the movements in his string trios are marked a la polacca. And this, yes, this absolute signature thing that his violin concertos always ended with a Polish folk song. So presumably then there is, in the archive, plenty of material that he left behind. It's not like you're discovering music. The, 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 the archive, his legacy has always been there. Well, yes, there are um, there are certainly um, printed materials going back to that period. Mostly, he was publishing music in the first decade of the nineteenth century, I think. Um, so, yes, and and that that seemed to be a period where there was um, a bit of a move away from the continental composer who was writing for orchestras in those violin concertos and there's a lovely divertimento concertante for orchestra and towards something that chimed in more with his business so he's selling musical instruments particularly square pianos like this beautiful one that uh, we have in the exhibition and therefore he's writing music for that and square pianos were quintessentially domestic instruments the equivalent of the grand pianos, the forte pianos, those were for the concert halls, but the square pianos were like the modern upright piano, their equivalent, and so they were for domestic music making. So alongside selling these pianos to his fashionable clientele, he's also writing the music for them. So the music that he's publishing by then is um, not always, I would say, with the same depth as the violin concertos, but it's more... Um, I suppose if it were a bit later in the 19th century, we'd call it salon music. But part of the, the fascination of this project has been that sense of, of following a trail, if you like. And, and there are elements of that, that journey which are not yet complete. I'm still determined to track down the lost strip areas. It's out there somewhere. Um, I, I, along with the, the help of a Stradivarius expert in New York, uh, it is possible that we have identified it. Uh, we, we found a violin that fits the three coordinates that we have for where Janowitz's Stradivarius was in three different historical periods. What we haven't found is the documentation that proves the link. So there are um, some rather intriguing question marks in there, which, which are part of the fascination. Um, and may, maybe I'll never completely catch up with him. I'm, I'm reminded in, in this um, this journey of discovery of um, the, the wonderful biographer Richard Holmes, who wrote a, a beautiful book called Footsteps, which was about the art of biography. And there's a story he tells in that, in that where um, he's researching um, the biography of um, R.L. Stevenson, and he goes to the south of France um, to reproduce the journey that Stevenson went on. And um, he wants to follow in the footsteps. And he can't because he gets to Avignon and the bridge over the river, famously, is broken. And he uses that as a kind of metaphor for, you know, you can cross so far and then they elude you. They've gone over the other side and you can't get there. And there, there is that slight sense that, you know, in, I'm, I'm in some ways feeling very close to my ancestor in this pursuit of his story but i'm never quite going to get all the way there and well and that's... well let, let's put a positive spin on it maybe maybe the bridge won't be damaged and maybe maybe you'll be able to cross the bridge and <laughs> yeah, you'll be able to find everything that you need Holmes's to know this point is that that is in the nature of, of biography short of time travel you will never 
Oh, I see, I see. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast presented by John Jacob. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly underscore good on Instagram, and Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on any half-decent podcast platform like Google or Amazon or Spotify, plus some others you might not have heard of.